I want to thank you before we begin this morning uh, for your prayers last week as Cal and I were traveling. You know, we were back in Albany, Missouri, the little town that I was in for, I guess, four and a half years, and Cal spent a year there after we got married. Uh, it was so good to reconnect with old friends, uh, to see faces of people who had loved us, uh, to meet and to see people who had prayed for Emory as we knew Emory was coming when we left there and came here, but Emory, they'd not actually seen her. So to let them see her and let children play together and uh, for them to be around Emory and Wilson was a lot of fun. For Callie and I to teach together as we got to do uh, at, a, at a conference last Saturday was really fun. Uh, we don't get a whole, a whole lot of opportunities for the two of us uh, to do that together, so it was a lot of fun, and we thank you for your prayers in that. Um, we thank you. We, we feel like God answered them, and that it was a, uh, an important weekend for us. So thank you for your prayers um, and what's happening. We're going to, this morning, start into a new series, talking about transformation and what that looks like, and for us as a church to be committed to the idea that transformation should be taking place in the lives of people. As we start, I want you to do me a favor. I want you to imagine Valley as a production plant or a factory. We're a plant tasked with creating some kind of, of widget, generic word for saying just a something. There's something that we're tasked with creating, and if we were a plant, we would make sure that we intentionally did some works to structure the factory, the building, uh, uh, the people, to equip all the people so that everything was happening exactly the way it needed to so that we could most effectively and most efficiently and in the best way possible create this, this widget, this thing that we have been tasked with creating. We'd look for the best possible way to produce this product. And as we think about us being a factory or a, or a production plant, I, 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 there's the question of what is it that we would be producing? What is it that we are producing? What is it we're striving to put out? As we think about that, and, and I know it sounds weird to think about the church in these kind of secular type terms, but if we are imagining ourselves as supposedly putting out a product, what's the quality of the product that we're putting out? What is the quality of the thing that we're producing? How does it compare to others who are producing something similar or even the exact same things? Again, weird to talk about it in this kind of language, and yet we believe that the Scriptures have actually tasked us with producing something. In Matthew's telling of Jesus' story as he comes to the very end of it, he wraps up what Jesus had to say with saying this, therefore, go and make disciples. The very end of Matthew's telling of Jesus' story, he comes to this conclusion, this summation, this assignment that he gives the disciples. He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There we see this, this move towards baptism, and I'd love to spend time talking about just that and why we do that this morning, but there's more happening in this that we have to recognize. After Jesus' death on the cross, after his resurrection from the grave, he's back and he's walking around, and as he comes towards the end of the time that he's physically on the earth, he looks at his disciples and he gives them this assignment. He says, go make disciples. 
And they would have had some kind of understanding of what that, that meant because we understand based on the conversation that at least the 11 remaining men that had given up their lives and chosen to walk with Jesus for three years, at least those 11 are here with Jesus in this moment when Jesus says, go and make disciples. So they understood at least a bit of what he meant because they'd been walking through the process that now he was calling other people to pursue, that he was calling other people to walk in. These men, and there may have been more there, but these men had learned Jesus' teachings. They'd experienced his work. They had become his friends. They had tried on their own to learn to follow and walk in this way of Jesus. What it meant for them to become disciples when they were walking on the earth and what they believed Jesus was continuing to say is that disciples were working to become, become copies. I originally had in my notes carbon copies and then I realized like three quarters of the room has never seen a carbon copy before so I took the carbon part out but for the rest of you, the call was that they would become copies of Jesus. They had seen Jesus doing this thing, disciple making. They'd even done some of this disciple-making stuff on their own with Jesus. And now here, as Jesus is leaving, he turns the work that he was doing over to them. He places it in their hands and he says, now you go and do what I was doing. You go and do what I've been doing. I'm leaving. You continue in this work. So in doing so, he gave them a little more information about the expectations that that placed upon them. And in verse 20, again, we're still in that last little bit of what Matthew says about Jesus. In verse 20, it says, teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So as Jesus says, go make disciples, and then he gives them some understanding. What does that mean? Well, first it means teach them. Go and tell them the things that you've been told. Go and tell them the things that Jesus has been saying to them. Go and repeat those things. Go and talk about the commands that Jesus had spoken about. And these commands somehow, although they were very similar, they looked a little bit different than the understanding of the Jewish commands that many of the people they would be talking to had. There, was a, there, were, there were these slight nuanced differences in what it meant now that they were being passed along by Jesus. So Jesus said, go and teach them. However, Jesus taught what they'd seen in these three years of walking with him is that, that Jesus used a way of teaching that, that wasn't just about telling the commands. It wasn't just about listing them, but Jesus did all these other really cool teaching things. And one of them was that Jesus modeled what it meant to live this way. Jesus had shown them how to become copies of him, how to live life the way that he was calling them to, how to live life the way that he believed God had created them to. So, so in this call to teach was also the encouragement to teach them by showing them or by demonstrating what it looked like. And in all of this, there was this important expectation, this, this understanding that was undergirding all of this that they were called not simply to go and tell and not even just to go and show, but that the actual hope for new disciples, for them as disciples and for new disciples that were coming to follow Jesus, the hope was obedience. Yes, there was an expectation that they pass on information, that they teach commands. But we have to hear this because I think so many of us get tripped up in this piece of what it means to create disciples. The goal was not 
passing on information. Theological precision was not actually what Jesus was dreaming of for new disciples. As Jesus talked about disciples, he wasn't talking about women and men who, who now knew certain things in their brain. For Jesus, disciples were people who did the things that they knew. They went out and they did this work. They went out and they behaved in this way. Disciples responded to the teaching, the speaking, the modeling, the showing. Disciples responded to it with obedience. They'd been called out to help women and men become disciples, teaching them and showing them so that they could come to obey the things that Jesus desired for them to do, that they could learn to live in that way, that we could one day live in that way. Not just know about it, not just talk about it, not just teach about it, but actually obey and do it. So think back to that factory. And think about Valley as a church. And let's ask the question, how are we doing? If we try to evaluate our production in this way, thinking about what it means to, to spin out disciples, women and men who are obedient to the ways of Jesus, how are we doing at producing disciples? People radically transformed by Jesus. Are you and I somehow being changed? because of the influence that Valley, that our church has on us and the ways in which it is making of us disciples. Believe it or not, whether you've been journeying in faith for two years or 10 years or 60 years, you and I should look different today as followers of Jesus than we did a year ago. That's part of the work of transformation that is supposed to be happening us, in us, that we as a church are supposed to be plugging into and making sure that that's happening in us. So how are we doing? What is the transformation that's happening in your life? What is the transformation that we're seeing in the life of others because they've been influenced by Valley, because we have somehow intersected in life with them? And out of that comes transformation. So obedience was this, was this mark. It was this, this thing that was happening out of disciples, this way in which they were responding, this way that you could recognize, oh, these are disciples. These are people who obey the things that Jesus taught and showed and lived. And yet, as Jesus talked about this, it's important for us to realize that it was also more than rule following. And while we sometimes get stuck in the idea of everybody needing to have theological precision, we also sometimes get stuck in this place of believing that, that following Jesus is all about following the rules. That even the speak of obedience is just about rule following. Am I checking off every, every box I'm supposed to check off? Am I acting the right way? Do people see me behave in the right type of fashion? And while there's no way for us to deny that the longing of Jesus was for women and men who were obedient to this new way of life, it also wasn't simply about rule following. The Pharisees had gotten really great at rule following. And Jesus was constantly battling with them how they'd missed the point. 
because the point was not simply rule following. So in the assignment, in the passages that we read in, in, in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, there's this really great last sentence in verse 20. This assignment, this task that Jesus had given them ended this way. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, let me be completely honest with you. I've read the Great Commission more times than I could possibly count. I love Matthew 28, verse 19. I love it. And yet, most of the time that I've read it, if I've continued into verse 20, I read this last sentence as if it was an extra unnecessary tag on, add on in what Jesus was saying here, as if this piece didn't carry with it the same weight or the same value or the same importance. Almost like it was one of these statements where you read it and you go, duh, I mean, I know that. What does that have to do with anything? What's the connection to the assignment in that last sentence? I'm beginning to wonder if that very last sentence of Matthew is actually the crux of the entire assignment. If it is actually what the entire assignment hinges upon, if the entire call to make disciples isn't absolutely dependent on that very last sentence in the book of Matthew, if that sentence alone isn't both the starting point and the ending point of what it looks like for women and men and churches to be disciple makers. Because you see, disciples know the commands of Jesus. And disciples obey the commands of Jesus. But what Jesus was looking for as Jesus was working to make disciples were women and men who lived life overwhelmed by the presence of Jesus. Jesus' hope above all else is that disciples would be women and men deeply in love with Jesus. Jesus' hope is that they would be, that we would be constantly falling more and more deeply in love with Jesus. Oh, friends, are you and I deeply in love with Jesus? You see, disciples knew and they followed the commands of Jesus, but what also was supposed to be coming out of that is that they were radically transformed simply by being in the presence of Jesus. So as Jesus left, what happens? Jesus then left the Holy Spirit with them because the calling of Jesus, the hope of Jesus was a people in the presence of God. In the Old Testament, we see them striving to be in the presence of God the Father. In the gospel story, striving to be in the presence of Jesus. After Jesus has left the earth, in the presence of the Holy Spirit. Jesus called them, Jesus called us to live all of our days and all of our moments in the presence of God in the presence of the Holy Spirit who does this work of transformation that is the evidence that we are disciples. That's why Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, and I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue this work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. 
transformation taking place because these people are in the presence of the Holy Spirit, because they are deeply in love with Jesus, because we are deeply in love with Jesus. And the reality is for me, even as I read these and, and trying to say, okay, I got, I got 20, 25, 30 minutes up here, how do I try and explain this really difficult balance that we have to understand between people and churches are clearly called to make disciples, and yet the Scriptures tell us over and over and only over again, the Holy Spirit actually makes disciples. And I really want it to be one or the other. I don't know how you feel about that, but I, re I really want it to be one or the other. The church makes disciples or the Holy Spirit makes disciples. And yet the scriptures seem to say it's not either or, it's always both. We as the church, we as followers of Jesus are called into this work of making disciples. The Holy Spirit is bringing transformation in the lives of other people. So think back to our metaphor, think back to our story, production plant, right? And let's see what happens if we alter that just a bit. A couple weeks ago, we did our, our meeting, our, our connect gathering, our time of reflection that we talk about. We did it in the center classroom. Jeff usually leads that and, and did a phenomenal job of leading it again. I'm so thankful for that gathering. As we were in there, I remembered the first one I sat in five years ago and how significant experience that was for me. This time, as Jeff was in there, he was talking about this uh, a metaphor, a story. He was using an example to explain what's happening. And as he began to speak, I literally thought, has he been reading my notes for this sermon that's about to happen in two weeks? And he hadn't, but it really felt like he might have. And there's a part of me that was a little bit jealous going, dude, you're stealing my sermon. <laughs> and the other part that recognized that there was this wonderful beauty and the reality that Jeff and I were both speaking this same story and this same metaphor. So I want to alter our metaphor a bit, move out of the production plant, and instead of a production plant, move into the idea that Valley exists as a garden. What if instead of being the production plant, we thought about ourselves as a garden? Now, both of them are tasked with producing something, right? Factories produce this, this widget, this thing, this whatever it is that they, that they spit out on the other end of the assembly line, and, and gardens produce plants. Now, in the factory, what we recognize is true is that almost all control falls in the hands of those who serve on the assembly line. Now, sure, there's managers and leaders and others that are speaking into it, but it's those workers who have complete control of what comes out on the other end. Now, sure, some of you might talk about machinery and all those things, but somebody program them, put them together, and it's people who are doing all of those things. If instead, in this metaphor of a garden we think about, we recognize that there becomes a shared responsibility. That control in some ways, that oversight of what's happening now becomes shared. If you and I were to take responsibility for caring for a garden, some of you would do a wonderful job. For me, that would be bad news from the very beginning. But if we were to take responsibility of trying to take care of a garden, there's this multitude of responsibilities of assignments that we would take on, right? We have to, we have to clear the soil. And you get out rocks and debris and all the other things that are somehow damaging to the soil or damaging to the idea of growing something. You would, you would till the soil. I had to look up how you actually spell that word because I... When you hear it in Kentucky, it doesn't exactly sound the same way as apparently the way it's spelt or even pronounced here. You'd till the soil and get it ready. You'd make sure that the right amount of sun 
can get to the soil based on the kind of plants that you're growing, the kind of crop that you're growing, the kind of flower, whatever it is, needs a certain amount of sun. And, and, and Dick and David Goble could tell us all about what this looks like in different ways. But we make sure that the sun hits that in the right way, and then we plant a seed, and then we make sure that the right amount of water makes it to that seed, that plant, that crop, that flower we're working to grow. In the process, we become responsible for trying to keep away any kind of pest that might come and try and attack or damage what it is that we're trying to grow. Multitude of, of different, whether it's, again, bugs or deer or rabbits or whatever that is, we want them out of the way because there's something we're responsible for taking care of. And as Jeff did such a wonderful job, much better job, by the way, of, of defining in that metaphor, we become responsible for creating the right environment for a plant to grow. And hear this. Creating the right environment is necessary in order to see the plant produce fruit. It's, it has to happen. It has to be a part of what's taking place. Uh, again, we could argue all metaphors break down depending on the plant and what has to happen, but most of the time the things you and I are planting, it requires that we do all this right. We plant the seed the right way, that we water the right way, that we make sure the right sunlight is going in. And yet, the other reality is it doesn't matter how perfectly we do every bit of this, Growing is ultimately dependent on God. God makes plants grow. We do everything to make the environment ideal for that situation to happen, but God makes plants grow. I don't, I can't, no matter how hard I work at it. God also is ultimately responsible for growing, transforming people. But what we do is that we make the environment ideal for growth as individuals and corporately as a church. Both must be happening. Both are incredibly valuable to see that transformation take place. Now again, can the metaphor break down? Yes. Does God work miracles in all kinds of places where the environment is not ideal for transformation? Yes. I can tell you story after story after story. But is that the way God desires for it to happen? No. God put the church here to help make the environment right so that the Holy Spirit could work transformation. We make the environment right for growth in me, in you, in us, in others. So Valley, let's come back to this point of evaluation, of asking the question, what kind of fruit are we seeing produced in our body because we have done the work of making the environment ideal for the Holy Spirit to bring transformation. Is the fruit that we're seeing, how does it compare with the, the images, the examples of fruit that were given in the Scriptures? Do we see that it looks like it's supposed to look in the Scriptures, both individually as, as people and corporately as a church? Are you and I, are we creating an ideal environment? for transformation to take place? Are we doing our part in the making of disciples? Am I committed to transformation? Are you committed to transformation? Are we, as a church, committed to transformation.
the more and more I read Scripture, the more I walk this journey of faith, it continues to become more and more clear to me that the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, that the work of disciple-making is about radical transformation in the lives of people. You, me, us, others who we come in contact with, radical transformation. Radical, radical transformation unimaginable, unexplainable, radical transformation. And we should have the ability to judge the work that's happening in our garden, in our church, based on whether or not we see radical transformation because of the work that we're doing as a church. So friends, church, do we see radical transformation in each of our lives? There's this question that I used to get asked when I was younger. These were by people who were somehow supposed to be mentoring me in faith, and they would ask, what's God doing in your life right now? And I don't know about you, but that's the worst question I've ever been asked in my life. I hate it for a couple of reasons. One is the idea that somehow it's all about activity all the time, and I don't actually think that's what God is trying to do. But the second is this piece of, I never had an answer that made any sense. It's like, uh, I mean, I was at church last week. Nope. Friends, the Scriptures do actually show us that as women and men came to know and to follow Jesus, that they experienced radical transformation, brand new lives, totally different. Now, sure, that looks different if you come to faith at five years old or you come to faith at 55 years old or you come to faith at 85 years old, of course. But all along the way, and the reason we talk about faith and discipleship as a journey is because radical transformation should be happening all along the process, all the way to the day that we no longer stand on this earth. Radical transformation. Are we seeing radical transformation in each of our lives? Are we seeing radical transformation in the life of our church? Are we seeing radical transformation in the people who we influence, in our community, in our neighborhood, in our workplaces, in our families, at the grocery store, in a restaurant? I mean, we can break it down and get really, really simple and say, let's make it a yes or no question, yes or no. And ultimately it means yes, we're doing our job, or no, we're not. You've heard over and over and over again us say as a church that Valley exists to make disciples. Other than those of you who are in the room for maybe the first or second time, is, is anybody that the first time you've heard us say that? You don't have to raise your hands. Don't worry about it. It's not the first time. It's, it's written on the front of your bulletin too, by the way. We exist to make disciples. So let me say that in a slightly different way. Are you ready? We believe that every person in the Towson area should be radically transformed because they've interacted with Valley in some way. 
We believe that every person in the Towson area should be radically transformed because they have interacted with valley people who have been radically transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit. We believe the Holy Spirit is radically transforming people, and our job as a church is to make sure that we introduce people to the radical transformation that the Holy Spirit desires to do in lives. That make sense? Sort of? Again, I can see your eyes, your heads. This is a yes. This one's a no. When you start folding up your bulletin, it's like, I'm done. I don't know what he's talking about anymore. I'm out. So over the next few weeks, here's what we want to do. We want to spend some time talking about what we feel like this commitment means for us, what it looks like for us to be this kind of people, what it looks like for us to do these things. And we've talked about this before, we've come to this before, but from new angles and new directions, we're going to continue to come back to what does this mean? Making disciples, as I understand it in the scriptures, is a partnership that exists between God and an individual. But it's also a partnership that exists between God and the body of Christ, between God and the church, as we are doing this work of making disciples among us and beyond us, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You see, as we think about our garden metaphor, we have to even alter it a bit more because we're not just growing individual gardens. We're really more like a communal farm in which we all have these plots of lands all overlapping and all right together, and we're all responsible, you and me and others, for working together to make sure that the soil is taken care of the way it needs to be, that all the right rocks are out of the way, that, the sun, that all of the land is getting the sunlight it's supposed to, that all of the land is getting watered the way it's supposed to, that we are making sure that we're caring for not just my plot of land, but our land together, believing that this is a work we have come to do together as the people of God. This is the church's work in making disciples. So Paul wrote again to the church in Philippi, verse 11, may you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation, the righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ, for this will bring much glory and praise to God. Now in that verse, it's a, it's a plural you. So where I grew up, we say that y'all. It's, it's y'all kind of you. It's not you as in take care of me and mine. It is not about me. It is about us and beyond. So at Valley, we've come to this place of believing that there are three commitments we make as individuals and as a church. And over the next three weeks, we're going to talk about those commitments and kind of break each of them down a bit. And I hope you'll plan to join us as we talk more about what radical transformation looks like for us, about what it means for us to be committed to transformation as we talk about personal whole life discipleship and we talk about investment in the Valley family and we talk about missional living. And then we're actually going to spin into a couple more weeks where we'll talk about some personal kind of observations and reflections on that. It's going to be a great next few weeks of talking about this. It's going to be really, really exciting as we come back to this place of reminding ourselves over and over and over again, Valley, we exist to make disciples. And that means people radically transformed by the work that we're doing because it's introducing them to the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. And where the Holy Spirit is around us, is near us, or we are in the presence of the Holy Spirit, transformation can't help but happen. Let me pray for you. Jesus, we thank you for the chance to come together.
to spend time in the scriptures together, to talk about you together, to be reminded of the incredible work that you long to do in us and through us, at Valley and beyond, in Valley, through Valley, using Valley. Oh, Lord Jesus, I ask for radical transformation in my life, in our lives, in the lives of each and every person that we come in contact with, because when they meet us, they recognize that they have been in the presence of Jesus. Jesus, go to work. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.